to Something for the Turbo, the new weekly podcast brought to you by Unfound, the global platform for the travel-loving cyclist. Well, it hasn't been weekly yet so far, has it? Apologies for that, everyone. We've had a bit of travel and a couple of guests unable to make the show, but we're back and we've got a number of episodes coming up for you over the coming weeks, starting with a fantastic episode today. Really interesting insight into the world of wheels bike wheels, custom wheels, factory wheels, tubeless, and much, much more. So I think you'll all really enjoy it. Before we kick on with episode three, I just wanted to introduce you all to a new initiative that we're running on the Unfound Hub. For those of you who don't know, Unfound is a cycling app for the travel-loving cyclist. It's a community of cyclists from around the world. I think we've got people from 144 countries on there. We also have an Asian based sponsored cycling team who kicked off the season with a win in a team time trial today and we're looking to start an initiative that is a little bit unique but we're trying to build a global race team now you may already have a race team you may do events on your own but either way we're looking to bring you together you can still join you may race for another team but you can still join the race community and what i mean by that is that you can get in contact with us and race in our colors and do events either with us or on your own or indeed you can get the kit for your your team and what we're trying to do is really connect people together with a sense of community so what we want to see on the hub are are people competing as i said the team race and won in in asia this weekend in hong kong amazing to see cyclocross in norway or crit racing in north america or racing the uk or australia australian season kicking off people racing in our colors there and sharing the experience with essentially your global teammates around the world so it's something a little bit unique and different and it's kind of hard to get your head around but i think even if you are currently racing a team it can still be possible we also moving into 2020 really want to build this community gather momentum but also do events whereby we can all come together from around the world and and race together or ride together so we're looking at maybe doing a long weekend in salzburg or in austria or potentially going to the tour of phuket in in thailand it's all sort of brainstorming at this moment and obviously like any team we can get yourselves involved in in new ideas and new initiatives and new events all the better ultimately it's something new and different and and if you're interested drop us an email contact at unfound.cc and we will send you size guide and, and costing the kit is well we think it looks fantastic it's also very well priced so great opportunity to join the team Now, we're on to today's episode. As I said, it's really quite a fascinating insight into the world of wheels. The sound quality, there's a couple of glitches because we've tried to basically, there's three of us on the call. It's it's myself and Ben Sharp who, who set up sharp precision wheels last year ben is a a master wheel builder he started his career off as an archaeologist actually before moving into the cycling industry and he's worked at one of the most well-known wheel builders in the uk um, clocking up over ten thousand hours in skilled wheel building and knowledge and in 2018 he set up sharp precision wheels which is his own company based in sussex and really they build custom high-end high quality high care i suppose and high attention to detail wheel sets for for a range of riders and and we'll get into a lot more detail in the conversation but having him as on call has been fantastic super interesting guy and ben thank you for joining us and if you listen to episode two alex stops who is a mechanical engineer with a a huge passion and interest in all things cycling he's also joined us from hong kong on the call he's an amateur wheel builder he's a very knowledgeable engineer he's worked in the automotive industry the aeronautical industry he's worked in the cycling industry and he's currently working in robotics building some sort of robotic arm fascinating guy and it was really interesting to get sort of ben's knowledge and understanding and and his sort of day-to-day experience of wheel building and hearing sort of alex's more scientific approach on things so they had a really interesting conversation i very much acted as the host and the i suppose the layman in terms of i have a bit of bike knowledge but like the rest of us it's kind of hard to figure out what's marketing jargon and what's not but very privileged to have them both on with us i really enjoyed the conversation i'd love to get them back on to follow up so if you do have any questions to either of them do contact us again that email is contact at unfound.cc that's contact at unfound.cc and maybe we'll do a show where we put your questions to them anyway without further ado let me introduce you to ben sharp from sharp precision wheels and alex stops 
So I've introduced you both gents prior to the recording, but Ben, Alex, thanks both for, for joining today. Looking forward to our chat. Primarily, let's kick things off with, with Ben. Wheel building, you are a master at it, I understand. Tell us a little bit more about your business and how you got into it and, and the art of wheel building itself. Absolutely. So I guess as a wheel builder, I, I really sit at one end of a spectrum. I've been building wheels now for about seven or eight years. I've certainly spent in excess of you know, well in excess of 10,000 hours building pairs of wheels. And I started my own business, Sharp Precision Wheels, about a year ago, just to take things in the direction that I wanted to, to go in, uh, to kind of indulge in being a little bit of a perfectionist for my customers, and just to offer a kind of more personalized um, after sales kind of process. Okay, that's great. So, so prior to you were working for uh, another wielder before setting up on your own, or is that right? Yeah, Absolutely. I worked uh, for one of the biggest hand wheel builders in the UK prior to setting up on my own, which is actually for me, you know, is an ideal place to, to learn to build wheels. You really need to, to specialise uh, with wheels. There are so many variables uh, and working at a larger wheel builder, you know, you get to concentrate on wheel building for a real variety of riders. And there's just no no distractions, uh, no bike servicing, you know, no gear tune ups, no kind of none of your normal uh, bike shop distractions so it enables you to have a really intensive learning process so you get to really specialize and, and prior to, to sort of pursuing that avenue i mean we've got alex here as well but were you a, a wheel building enthusiast and then sort of pursued it or you kind of fell into it how did that come about to be honest i just completely fell into it i've always ridden kind of you know going back 10 or 15 years um, i was a triathlete i did a lot of triathlon and uh, i actually originally trained as an archaeologist at university I uh, went on to, you know, uh, a real variety of projects uh, in the UK, but also in the Middle East, working in Iraq, Jordan, Abu Dhabi, Qatar. And I really just uh, completely fell into, into wheel building by chance. Too many cold, frozen winters in the UK pushed me, you know, to, to try something new. Um, so I fell into it completely by chance, yeah. Oh, fascinating. And how about you, Alex? Is that How did you get into wheel building? Was that just engineering curiosity or...? Uh, hi Jules, yeah, thanks for having me back on the podcast again. So I got into wheel building basically from a frustration of having too many widowed wheel sets. Basically, I've got a room full of front wheels where I've probably broken the rear wheels because they've basically been underbuilt for my weight and the type of riding that I do. I was going to so, say, is that because you're a bigger rider? I would say so, yes. Um, we'll probably touch on it later, but a lot of the kind of off-the-shelf wheels are built basically down to a weight figure because that's what people want. They want the lightest wheel set. And if you're racing down to a weight figure, you lose you lose out durability and you lose out stiffness and certain characteristics like that. So I took up wheel building as basically an amateur hobby just to build wheels for myself that would last. Oh, very good. And I think, I'm, I mean, I'm coming at this from obviously hosting the podcast, but also from a layman perspective. Well, what I'm really fascinated to sort of dig into a little bit deeper, Ben, is the, is the whole marketing spiel around wheels. And I think it's for a non-technical person. It's it's quite daunting to understand which wheel to ride. What should I race with? What should I train with? You know, why go to a wheel builder? What are the benefits? I don't know if you guys can help clear us up on a little bit around that. I think you know probably we could you know we could literally talk for absolutely hours about this. The real going to a wheel builder is 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 in talking to somebody, uh, explaining to them exactly who you are and what you do on your bike. And then working together to produce a, a wheel specification which suits that riding. When you approach a wheel builder, you're approaching a, a, an individual and a kind of a craftsman. When somebody comes to me, I know that I have to build the right wheel for them because if something goes wrong with that wheel, it's only coming back to me, which is a, an unsatisfying situation for me and it's an unsatisfying situation for, for the rider. People who are looking at factory wheels... Factories and bigger manufacturers have, you know, uh, an acceptable rate of returns and they just they just kind of swallow that. So they can be a lot broader with the wheels that they, they produce and who they produce them for. So I think I think the challenge or the, the, the hurdle to get over is if you've only ridden factory wheels, you probably don't know. And that's I'm sure as, a, as setting up your own brand, that's the biggest sort of marketing challenge for you. You probably don't know the benefits. One of those things you don't know how good it is until you've ridden wheels that have been made for you. That's absolutely true, but it's also uh, important to say that factory wheels do a good job for a certain sector of the, of the market. You know, there are a lot of riders out there who are enjoying factory wheels um, with no problems with them whatsoever, and, you know, the wheels are doing a really good job for them. The problem is, perhaps, 
that we're all very different these days. You know, uh, some of us are 60 kilo climbers, others, uh, you know, 200 kilo guys who still want to go out and thrash a gravel bike around. The factory market can't possibly cater for, for that, that broad spectrum of humanity. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And so when would you say, when, when should someone embark I mean, it's interesting because with with Unfound, I kind of I, I drew a graph that sort of plotted a cyclist's career. So when someone first gets into cycling, they're a complete novice. They're on flat pedals, and and the curve as as you sort of get more into cycling, various things happen. You start doing events, and then you know you know start riding with a team and shaving your legs, and you know there's there's definitely a curve as you get more into the sport and certainly from an unfound perspective you know i think we're, we're sort of at the, at the sort of far right right hand end of the curve when when should someone come and speak to a wheel builder what what part of that journey or when on that journey should they come and say okay i've been using factory wheels i'm doing some racing or i'm thinking about doing some gravel what what part of the journey should they come and have a chat and say okay what what more can i get out of the wheels that i'm using to be honest i think once you're through that initial phase of uh, of going you know being a new cyclist and you're starting to think about you're starting to think about training plans you're starting to get more regular with your riding and you're starting to to really understand um what you enjoy doing on your bike um you know that's the time at least to to start thinking about you know, pairs of wheels and, you know, just thinking about talking to a wheel builder. Changing the pair of wheels on your bike is probably one of the, the best upgrades you can possibly make as a, as a first upgrade, um, you know, on that first road bike or gravel bike. Um, and so, you know, relatively early on, it's something you can do uh, to make sure that you have less stress in your riding as you as you move forwards, perhaps, and rack up some more miles. And something that you can do, yeah, just as a little psychological boost for yourself, you know, to, to enjoy riding your bike a bit more. And on a personal level, what are your, your favourite wheels for you? What do you absolutely love or what do you look out for or what do you try and get out on it for yourself? What, I mean, you mentioned you're a triathlete, but what kind of riding are you doing at the moment? Yeah, so at the moment I am, you know, purely on the road. I absolutely love going out and just riding up hills in Sussex, Devil's Dyke, Ditchling Beacon, Stenning Bostel, anything with a bit of gradient to it. I love just going out and flogging myself up a hill. But I'm looking to, uh, I'm looking to, to get a gravel bike and I'm looking to get, you know, get away from the road. I think like a lot of people, the traffic situation has just got too much for me. Riding for me is about you know relaxation and about switching off a little bit from from work and about you know stresses in your in your personal life and going out on the road at the moment you know has become more stressful uh, over the last few years. There's just too many cars and I'm looking forward you know, now to just getting away from it all a bit. Okay, and so, so building a gravel wheel, how how does that? differ obviously wider talk us through the sort of specifications around what you'd be looking to do if someone was looking to, to get a gravel wheel set from you definitely so gravel wheel sets you're 100% looking at a width of the rim and that you know goes uh, hand in hand with what size tire people are, are kind of anticipating running uh, whether they want to run tubeless or with within a tube still um, I'd say that the vast majority of gravel riders are running tubeless um, and with a larger tire sort of 32 to 42c tubeless system works quite well at very low pressures you've also got to look at durability spoke count of the wheel in my personal opinion is not a great deal of point in uh, going for ultra low spoke count uh, gravel wheels the wheel is probably subject to, to more stress than it would be were you riding out on the road so a few extra spokes in there helps to share the load um, of any kind of impacts and yeah uh, just a reliable hub something that you don't have to worry about too much something that's well sealed and take a little water a bit of mud uh, and carry on going with kind of minimal servicing requirements okay any examples of, of hubs particularly that you like for gravel best gravel hubs to be honest with you dt swiss are doing a fantastic job yeah there are positive negatives to every every hub out there you know um but what i look for is is something which technically builds a good wheel um builds a stiff wheel so you have a good balance of spoke tension um between you know each side of each side of the wheel and something which you don't need to fuss over, you know. DT Swiss hubs have no preload adjusters to worry about. If you want to service them, you can service them with no tools. You know, the free hub body just pulls off. Give it a good clean out in there with a microfiber towel and a regrease, and it's back together. Compare that to, you know, a lot of other hubs on the market, which may be better in other areas. Um, it's just a lot easier to live with. That's interesting. What, what about you, Alex, in terms of the riding, racing you do? What what wheels do you have at the moment? And and where are you thinking about going with your, your wheel decisions or selections in the future? Well, I go I go through phases of, of what wheels and what combinations of rims, hubs and spokes that I like. But for me, I think the most important part of any wheel set actually, for me, is, that, is the spokes. And I don't think off the peg, 
factory wheels put enough emphasis on quality spokes and getting the spoke count right and as you touched on before i think a lot of manufacturers are trying to outdo each other in terms of low weights just so they can put it on the on the ad on online and people will buy it if it's 20 grams lighter but if you take a 20 front hole and a 24 rear hole rim 20 and 24 spokes then if like me or over 80 kilos you do like steep climbs at low uh, wheel rpm then often those number of spoke counts isn't really adequate. Now, why did I say about the wheel RPM and, and the steepness of the climb? So if you're doing 400 watts on the on the flat and the wheel is spinning very fast, the torque on the rear wheel is very, very low. If you're doing 400 watts up a climb and the wheel RPM is very slow, the torque is huge. So then it becomes more important. So if you're a climber and you're heavy and you put a lot of torque through the rear hub, the spokes and the number of spokes become really important. And when I'm building wheels or looking at wheels to buy, if I'm buying factory wheels, I always look at spoke count and I will not go lower than 28 on the rear because I just find the stress in the remaining spokes is higher and they fatigue more and I just break spokes. So I won't build anything with less than 28 in the rear. But at the moment, I'm I'm riding my disc disc brake road bike quite a lot it's actually quite interesting to see the rims i can go deeper on the rim section for the aero benefits and actually they're not too heavy because they don't have the, the rim brake track which essentially is is a thicker wall basically than you need on the carbon rim so the wall thickness of the carbon rim near the tire can be a little bit thinner and so i've been experimenting with deeper wheels on my on my disc brake road bike but on my rim brake road bike i like to still have a nice light very simple wheel set i don't like anything too too flash and again i think the most important thing for me is is the spokes because i've especially i travel quite a lot with the bike in in the bike suitcase and one thing that might really scupper you on a ride if you're out in the middle of the countryside somewhere in a, in a foreign country is if you break a spoke it's not often something you can fix at the side of the road easily like how many riders do you know that aren't doing audaxes that go and take spare spokes out on the ride like, i don't know any and if you break a spoke and the wheel won't pass through the frame or fork it's kind of game over try and get a taxi or something home so spokes for me is is really important in the wheels and, and just, uh, just very quick I, I always just a quick question for you when, when you say quality of spokes you're talking about the spoke count rather than the actual material of the spoke or the, the actual spoke itself both exactly both very important so the spoke count needs to be matched to the rider weight and the style of riding in terms of uh, torque not necessarily power because as we touched on before power on the flat and power on the hills in terms of torque is very different so let's say you live in in holland and you ride flat at 40 k's an hour all day but you, you're putting a lot of power out actually the torque on the rear wheel is, is very low because the power speed equation in, in torque it you can't change physics it's just an equation but if you're doing the same power up a very steep climb at low wheel speed then the torque increases it's just to, to match the equation so the number of spokes is important to distribute the load and also the type of spoke there are some cheap spokes that come on factory wheels and there are some more high-end spokes that come on factory wheels like dt swiss aerolite or sapim cx ray so i i always build with sapim cx ray because they have one of the highest fatigue lives of any spoke so what does that mean it's like how many times you can stress the spoke before it snaps basically everything has a fatigue life those two types of spokes that I mentioned generally have a very high fatigue life. So you're unlikely to snap them if the wheel's built properly and the number of spokes is correct. So that's why I choose them, just for reliability purposes. The hubs, I always tend to stick with something quite simple, something that's easy, easy to service. And the rims, again, if you're not braking on them, you can use carbon. There's no real drawbacks apart from the tolerances might not so be so good as, as aluminium with the spoke drillings and stuff. Yeah, with the rim, with the with the disc brakes it, it frees up the rim design a little bit and I, I just going back to what we touched on offline before i think a lot of it comes down to education so when people look at getting a hand-built wheel off someone like ben or they're or thinking about doing it themselves maybe they don't actually know what the end goal is and ben said the word which i'd like to point out is the most important word for me and it's specification so i'm an engineer that's my day job and before i design anything or before we build anything you you form a specification now when you're looking at buying factory wheels there is no specification the only spec the only specified point basically is the weight and and with within the other kind of character characteristics of the wheel they're all very similar so it's like the the the, the brands are, are forcing the consumer just to choose by the weight and the cycling media doesn't help either because if i guarantee if you read any wheel review in any online cycling magazine you'll read the two biggest cliches in wheels right it spins up well which is complete rubbish because they've all got bearings in the middle and something like they hold their speed and i just think 
that is those are just the two most uneducated cliches that people people read that and they think okay that's that's the uh characteristics i have to look for in a wheel and i it's just not what we it's not it drives me mad it's not what we should be looking for we should be looking for stiffness reliability serviceability of the hubs the type of bearings that are used in the hubs because some some wheels use very cheap bearings which won't last a season in in wet conditions and some of the really high-end wheels can use like you know skf bearings for instance which are top grade engineering bearings and these are the little details that we need the media to be reporting on not they spin up well because you know it's round and it's got a bearing in the middle of course it's going to spin up well <laughs> you wouldn't buy it if it didn't turn you know so yeah those are just a few of the things i look for and what i'm riding at the moment and what would you add to that ben in terms of the particular spoke thing that's quite interesting for, for me is that something that's a big focus for you are you on the sort of same wavelength as alex in terms of those views yeah i've got to say it's actually quite it's nice to hear alex uh you know say those things to be honest with you um because it's perhaps it's it's quite hard to actually educate people about this quite hard to make people understand you know and he's obviously he's hit the nail on the head completely it's very difficult to, to coax people towards uh slightly higher spoke count wheels so for riding in the uk i would say a road disc wheel set should have ideally with a with a shallow aluminium rim 28 spokes front and rear and that's almost regardless of the the size of the rider and the reason i say that is just because the roads are so poor i mean if i was riding fresh tarmac french mountains fine a 24 spoke disc wheel might be might be appropriate but for the majority of people in the uk riding on massive potholed roads 28 spokes is is a more appropriate number you know the wheel will be more durable if you do have an impact the load will be shared by a greater number of spokes you'll reduce the you know the chance of, of completely wrecking the wheel also spoke selection for me is very important i do vary the the selection of spokes the thickness and, and gauge of spokes depending on the the characteristics i want you know from the wheel so stiffness he mentioned is important oh, wow. okay that, that's i didn't realize that so you you'll you'll sort of vary them per wheel or i'll vary them per wheel uh, depending on the weight of the rider uh even depending on who wants to run tubeless or not so if i am building with a hub, for example, that I know um, has a, a slightly, you know, a worse distribution of spoke tension in the rear wheel. Something like a Chris King hub, for example, you know, it, it, the design and geometry of the hub lead it to have a very low non-drive side tension. So if I'm building a low spoke count wheel and I know that the rider wants to run tubeless, I will probably suggest that they run a slightly heavier gauge of spoke in the rear wheel because I know that the tubeless tire is going to exert a lot of pressure on the rim. It's going to drop that spoke tension even further and it could lead uh, to a wheel which is, you know, much less stiff than it ought to be, all for the sake of a few grams, you know, with a slightly heavier spoke. That's fascinating. And I, and I think it's the, the, both of what you've just said, I think this is part of the challenge, right? Is I think just people don't know or don't understand the science or don't understand the intricacies and they get swept up in, in the sort of broader marketing and, and it comes back to, okay, I think people they, people want to learn more, but they where do you go to find out more? And that's where I think people get lost. And I think just hearing you talk in terms of how you build and the intricacies and the considerations i would say a lot of cyclists out there aren't even aware i think you're absolutely right the thing is there are so many variables to consider you know when you are trying to come up with a specification for a wheel you need to consider the height and weight of the rider the type of terrain they're going to be riding on the size of tire they want to run whether they want to run tubeless or with inner tubes you know even aesthetic properties are important to, to people you know the look of a bike is, is really important to a lot of guys and yeah there's just so much to so much to consider i think approaching a wheel builder is a good chance for you to you know conduct a sort of audit of your own riding um, and it you know it might help you move forward as a rider in understanding you know where you want to go with that riding yeah very good well i mean we can do it now so obviously i'm, I'm just moved back to the uk i have disc brake bike and i also have a rim brake bike which i'll probably ride through the winter it's uh, a cannondale cad 12 last year lovely orange frame but I, I i was thinking about getting some winter wheels also more durable wheels for sort of winter riding and potentially the old commute as well w what are your thoughts around okay height height wise i'm 182 centimeters weight wise i'm probably 78 kilograms at the moment what i just sort of I'll put you on the spot there but what would you be thinking as a sort of build for for something that's pretty durable over the winter for for a cad 12 absolutely so um hub wise i'll definitely look look at something like a dt swiss 350 hub potentially 
a Hope Hub. I, I feel like the DT Swiss Hub is a little bit more elegant looking than a Hope Hub. The star ratchet mechanism in the DT Swiss Hub is extremely easy to service. You could genuinely do it yourself at home. No tools, um, just a little bit of the correct grease. The hub's got a good geometry as well, comparatively. So I know it's going to build a relatively stiff wheel and it's going to give you just no no problems over the winter, effectively. Uh, it's a little bit heavier than a lot of hubs out there. There are a lot of wheel builders using cheaper hubs, uh, Bitex hubs, Novatech hubs, things like that for, for winter wheels. I would argue that they're not really up to the job and that, fair enough, a DT Swiss 350 hub might be 80 grams heavier for the pair of hubs, but you will have significantly less issues with it in the long term. Rim-wise, if you really... Sorry, I think of my weight. Weight's not the major consideration when you weigh 78 kilograms. No, absolutely. Rim-wise, if you really are going to crucify these over the winter and you are going to run them in, in all weathers, which would be, you know, we're into real traditional training wheel territory here, then I personally don't think it's worth spending a lot of money on, on rims. There are some good rims out there with relatively thick, you know, wall thicknesses of aluminium. Uh, stuff like the DT Swiss R460 rim is pretty good. It's not not a fussy, you know, it's not a fussy thing. It's it's a 40 quid rim. And if you're going to go out there in, on salty roads uh, and put in, you know, put in the miles over the winter, there's no point in spending 80, 90, 100 pounds on an alloy rim because it is, you know, the rim is a consumable item in a, in a handbook and especially in a winter wheel, you have to view the rim as a, as a consumable. Spoke-wise, again, you know, if this is going to be a winter wheel, just a round double-butted spoke, something like a Sapin race spoke. Someone like yourself, Jules, you know, I know you, you, you think of yourself as heavy, but you're really not. You're, you know, you're a perfectly normally sized guy. 24 spokes on the front, 28 on the rear would, would see you absolutely fine through the winter. If you wanted ultimate durability, then yeah, 32 spoke front and rear wheel. That's what I used to ride on a rim brake road bike through the winter in the UK. I put, you know, almost 10,000 miles onto a, a set of wheels like that one winter. And for me, 32 spokes front and rear isn't a problem, but 24, 28 would be absolutely fine for you. Okay, cool. And say we built that up. I mean, what, what would you recommend from a tyre perspective then? Is that is that part of the wheel, the, the tyres you use as well, or are you just sort of spoke? hub and, and rim i think so yeah i mean i do make tire recommendations to riders i do supply tires with my wheel builds and i also recommend tire pressures to each individual rider based upon their weight the size of tire that they're going to be using and the width of the rim that they're going to be running i think especially with tubeless now tire pressure almost has become a little bit of a minefield for people rims are much wider than they used to be you can realistically run much lower tire pressures than you used to yes 10 years ago i was i was running 23c tires at 115 psi on my road bike now i'm running yeah. fives at you know 80 85 psi on a wider rim so yeah okay cool i'm happy to advise yeah yeah, so so for that wheel particularly that, that you sort of mentioned there, what what, what tyres would, would you sort of lean towards? Something like a, a Continental Grand Prix four-season. The four-season tyre, it's, it's got great puncture resistance. The rubber compound on that tyre is the, the grippy black chilli rubber compound. If you go towards the kind of gator skin type tyre, those are tougher tyres in respect to puncture resistance, but the rubber compound they use is not quite as grippy. The tyre carcass is not quite as supple, so you don't get quite the ride quality from it. But yeah, a Grand Prix four season from Continental will be great. My personal opinion is that on a road bike with a 23 or a 25 C tyre, you will not feel a massive benefit from going tubeless. You are better off sticking uh, with an in tube, which is much easier to, to change should you get a puncture out on the winter roads. Superb. You've, you've nicely led to my next question because we put in our weekly email the article that, that you put together with regards to tubeless. And there, I don't know if you guys have seen on the Hub this week, there's been a lot of debate around tubeless on, on road bikes. That that article has been hit multiple hundreds of times this week alone. So it's, it's prevalent for everyone at the moment coming into the winter. I know both of you have got quite strong views on this. Let's, let's open that can of worms. Tubeless tyres for road bikes. Where do we stand on it? I'll take this one. <laughs> I think above 30C, I think you're fine with tubeless because I've done the calculation, as Sean Kelly would say, and below 30C, 28, 25, 23 just doesn't work. Ideal gas law, no, I won't get into that, but basically the, the pressure's too high, the volume's too low, the pressure forcing the cut in the tyre open is, is too much in anything below a 30c i think yeah it works fine in mountain bikes i used to use it in mountain bikes and i wouldn't ever use tubes in mountain bikes but then you're running you know a 2.6 inch tire at 20 psi 25 psi and there's not much pressure there so it's easy for the sealant to fill the void in the tire now for the road it would be great if we had developed sealants that were set to work at a much higher pressure 
and a much higher hoop stress. And hoop stress is the basically the pressure in the carcass of the tire pulling the cut apart when the when the tire's under pressure. And but we don't. We we basically have like universal sealant, and it doesn't really work under those high pressures that's my experience i've tried it on road bikes with 23 mil tires definitely didn't work i had some success at 25 and 28 but i could only get the tire to seal reliably when it's down to 40 psi now if a tire's at 40 psi on my road bike if if i had a tube in it and it was at 40 psi i'd take it out and fix it because i don't want to ride at 40 psi if i hit a pothole i'm going to hit the rim if i hit stone i'm going to pinch it so i'd rather get it back to op- optimal operating condition you know 90 90 psi and carry on and not deal with the mess because i've had so many messy incidents with tubeless and sealants and trying to get them to work from my opinion under yeah 28 to 30 c it just doesn't work i think you've absolutely nailed it when i wrote the article that i wrote i think i was expressing the thoughts and the views of a lot of wheel builders out there tubeless you know tubeless road has been promoted by the industry as being this absolute cure-all for every road cyclist and the fact of the matter is that for some people it's going to work and it's going to be okay but for others it's it's absolutely not you know not the direction to go in and you know i do recommend to people you know running 23 25 even you know 28 c tires you're not going to feel the full benefits of, of tubeless with rim width being the way it is these days you can run a much lower tire pressure in a in a regular inner tubed tire and you you get some of those you know some of those benefits without having to, to go tubeless and yeah the sealant just doesn't work at high pressures i've you know i've been in mechanics on a lot of uh, sportives in the you know south of england and i spend most of my day there putting inner tubes in tubeless tires for people because they've not sealed and they oh, really they're right oh that's that's interesting to hear I, I think the other side of the argument reading from the comments on on the hub this week is the fact that people are saying the technology's there it's better you should try it I, i'm with you on on both your gentlemen's arguments given your knowledge and experience but do, I, I think obviously the technology is improving do we see it getting there at some point do we do we think that tubeless will be the future if the technology can be improved i think the main area of development is kind of a two-pronged attack i think there needs to be a unified standard for rims and tires and I think there needs to be a lot more development done on the sealant. Now, I think the first thing I mentioned is probably probably the easier thing, and it just needs one manufacturer to come out and really nail it with the with the tire and rim interface. And I can imagine that being on the tire side, Continental, and on the rim side, probably Mavic, because they kind of did a UST standard before, I think, for mountain bikes. So I think that originated. And in mountain bikes, it, it, it does work, but you still have problems in mountain biking of blowing the tire off the rim because of the interface. And that now we're looking at things like inserts and foam foam cores and stuff, you know, to protect the rim in case you do get a complete blow off. So it's still not quite ready. Obviously, the demands of a mountain bike tire and rim, are, you know, the, lat- the lateral forces are much higher. In especially sort of free ride and downhill mountain biking, but that's really at the extreme end of the scale. But I think the main area of development is the sealant. And this goes back to automotive uh, applications as well, because if you compare the sealant that we're using in our bike tires to automotive tire sealant for tubeless car tires and truck tires, stuff like that, it's very similar, but it's a very hard thing to do because you need this. It's very, the viscosity of the liquid is very important. So if you've got, let's say, a high pressure, low volume road 25C tire with sealant inside it, the viscosity needs to be low enough so that the fluid can travel to the cut quickly so you don't lose too much air but if it's too viscous not viscous enough it won't stick in that cut and form a plug so it's a really it's actually really hard to get right you need it you need it runny enough to find the hole and get there quickly before you lose too much air but then if it's too runny it will just it'll just spurt out the side if the cut's big enough so the sealant is really really tricky to do and a lot of sealants kind of have a shelf life and after a while they dry up inside the tire and it it depends on you know where you store your bike the humidity because tires and tubes are they're not hermetic they're not airtight so you know water can pass through rubber and, and butyl air can pass through butyl and rubber as well so all these things need to be taken into account to develop the sealant and it's it's a really really hard thing to nail and, and even there are automotive and commercial truck sealants that aren't perfect even in their own industries so for us to deal with it at low volumes and high pressures of, of you know 90 psi is really tricky and i just want to go back to the pressure and volume thing you know you've got Let's say a mountain bike tire running at 20 psi. You've got a, a road tire running at 100 psi. So you've got five times the pressure in the road tire and maybe a fifth of the volume. So it, it's so, it's such a, a hard thing to do in road compared to mountain bike because the parameters are completely different. So you've got five times the pressure and maybe 
five times less volume. So get that air sealed before it starts coming out and then the tyres at too low pressure is, is really hard. And I, I really can't see it. You know, certain things in nature you just can't change, right? It's like the dodo became extinct because it couldn't fly and then it got it got preyed upon. So it, it's, it, I just don't think it's going to get... It's literally it's not going to get off the ground. It could be a phase <laughs> my for, opinion. for for road cycling anyway, so it may not survive. I think so. Alex, we, we spoke a few weeks ago, and obviously the podcast was um, meant to be a weekly thing, and we will be picking it back up as a weekly thing, but uh, we had a bit of a sabbatical for a few weeks, so we're, we're sort of relaunching with this one. But if you haven't listened to the conversation I had with Alex, do go back and listen to it. It's, it's very interesting. We talked about the future of wheels and where that may go. I'll be interested to get your thoughts and Ben's thoughts on that in a little bit more depth as well. Just just give us a bit of a, a recap, Alex. So to recap what we said in, in the previous podcast about, about future of wheels, I said, I'm surprised there are not more full carbon monocoque wheels out there. Now, we do see some in the mountain biking and, and I think there's some road applications, obviously like disc wheel or a, a tri-spoke TT wheel is a monocoque uh, wheel with basically solid spokes that don't need to be tensioned. They're not, they're not wire wheels as such, but I did say at the time, you know, this goes against, this goes against Ben's livelihood. This is his job to make spoked wheels from steel spokes and rims and stuff. And it's a, it's a modular system. And the, the, the problem with like that you do face with a, with a carbon monocoque wheel the manufacturers that are doing it i think it's called spengel so if anyone wants to go and look at what i'm talking about look up spengel wheels and you'll see a full monocoque carbon wheel but then literally like then there's no customization it's it's one size fits all you've got one rated stiffness which you can't change if you're a very lightweight rider and the wheels built really stiff it's going to beat you up it's not feel comfortable so i think in terms of mass production and aerodynamics those two things could be really honed for that type of production. But if you want a customized wheel, like Ben will do, you, you really can't you really can't get past the modular system of a separate hub, separate spokes, and separate rim because it, it's like you know it's like a tailored suit. You can really tailor it to your specification with with a full monocoque. So Ben, wheel, just you, you before you jump in on this, because I've had a bit of a thought think about this since our um, conversation, Alex. I, I think basically with, with the the wheels that you're proposing, it, it kind of exasperates the situation we have with regards to factory wheels in in the current market. So while they could be improvement in wheel quality and performance for particular kind of riding, be it racing or whatever, given the diversity of riding that we're seeing now with more people doing gravel and different types of riding, it may mean that there's a bigger scope for different type, more different types of wheels. And actually, it's just going to be another line of wheels that will may take over for, for road racing but ultimately ben's custom wheels for for gravel and winter riding and different types of riding are still going to be the way forward yeah there's one there's one it will be one type of wheel fits all and there's there's no customization with those type of wheels so if if you don't like the stiffness and if you don't like the characteristics and the way out of the box then you're stuffed basically because yeah. you can't, what do you you think, can't ben? change it um, I think Alex is right when he says, you know, if you don't like the characteristics of that type of wheel, um, you are stuffed, really. I think it can be easy to look at a kind of spoked wheel, a hand-built spoked wheel as being old-fashioned, but you can't deny the, the kind of ride quality that you get from, from using that, that spoke at high tension. You know, a, a, a thin gauge of spoke at running at a high tension, the ride quality you get is going to be completely different to that, uh, that, that full carbon wheel. So I'm not particularly concerned about losing you know losing market share or, or being left behind by kind of full carbon monocoque wheels i think uh, they look kind of cool and for you know for a very select few they might be the right product but i think there's still there's still development product development in respect of, of rims and hubs um that we can do to, to produce you know a better hand-built wheel so, so where do you think the hand-built wheel world is going to evolve to I think, I mean, as a wheel builder, my obsession is in is in building a tighter toleranced wheel for for every individual. I mean, it's not just in selecting the right components for that person because you can you can select the right parts and then still put them together badly. But it's it's in exploring areas of product development that will enable me to build a better wheel. So that means uh, producing rims which are, are better manufactured so that I can build you know a, a wheel with more even spoke tension. I guess areas that we could look at are 3D printing rims. Theoretically, you should be able to build a rim with no joins, no uneven uh, carbon fiber layup, no uneven extrusion. You should be able to build a, a more, you know, a more evenly balanced wheel as a result of that. Hub development as well. I think uh, the majority of bicycle hubs at the moment are hubs that have been adapted throughout the last 
10 to 15 years, disc brake hubs, for example, we've settled on a kind of 142 by 12 rear standard on disc brake bikes now. Most of the hubs are adapted from 135 mil hubs. And I think a kind of ground up approach to, to hub design, starting from fresh, should lead to some, some interesting new hub geometries that might help to build stiffer rear wheels with more balanced spoke tension. And those are areas, you know, that I would kind of look to in the future to, to produce better wheels. For me, it's, yeah, it's purely about producing the tightest tolerance wheel that I possibly can for someone because I know then that it will last longer. Very cool. Very cool indeed. So I've got a question for both of you individually. Obviously, we've got... I'm very excited. I'm going to Harrogate this week for the World Champs. Looking forward to all of those races. But I'm just going to ask you to firstly predict a winner for the Elite Men's Time Trial and then the Elite Men's Road Race. And for the road race, what what wheels, if you could, would you put that chosen rider on? Ben, go for it. No pressure. Uh, I'm just just looking up the course. Emergency looking up the course. (laughs) So what wheels in the road race? Yeah, well, pick a time trial winner first. Who do you think will win the men's elite time trial? I, I'm I'm torn now. <sighs> That's hard. Patriotism versus reality. Uh, Alex, any views on the time trial? You are the time trial machine. Uh, how long is it? Tell me how so, long it is. You're going to do the stats, are you? Um, I'm looking at... Uh, I'm not, I want to know how long the TT is. Uh, yeah, so it's pretty hilly. Uh, who, <laughs> I don't know who's riding. Um uh, well, if he'd not just won the Welter, I'd say Primoz Roglic, because yeah. that course would suit him perfectly. Right. Victor Campanert's riding. Okay, he's my okay. pick. What wheels would you have him on? Um, 60, 60 mil deep front wheel, not a tri-spoke. And you- the back. Yeah, I can't argue with it. Yeah, I was about to offer up, actually, I was, you know, you, you mentioned oh, what wheels would a pro rider, you know, ride. It's difficult, obviously, because they have to ride whatever they're sponsored with. They don't really get too much choice unless they're sneaky with you know, putting stickers on things. I've heard, I've heard, so I've read a few articles with uh, pros basically not enjoying their uh, their wheels for the year. And it's a big thing, right? They really don't like it. And obviously they, they support the sponsors and stay on brand. But the whole, the whole hiding behind stickers and stuff like that, is that true? Have you heard examples of that? I've definitely seen examples of it. And I've, you know, I've been a part of examples of it perhaps in, in the past. <laughs> And, and certainly been a part of supplying wheels to, to pro riders for things where they are kind of allowed to ride their own kit. Uh, things like the Olympics, um, you have a lot more choice over what you ride. And so, you know, I have in the, in the past been a part of supplying, you know, kind of bespoke wheels to, to pro riders who are doing the Olympic road race, for example, and want something a little bit special. Yeah, so it's definitely a thing. Um, it happens. It even happens at the Tour, definitely. Riders will, even if they have a pair of wheels built just to stick on the roof of the team car, just for, for kind of insurance, if you like. It definitely happens. Wow, that's that's very interesting. Very interesting to hear. And who are we picking for the uh, men's elite road race on the Sunday? Can I just chime in, TT? <laughs> yeah, Dennis. Because oh. I, think, I think he's hungry. He's come back with a bit of anger. Uh, he's not riding his Merida. He's come back with a different bike on, of his own choice, which will be labelled up as something else. And yeah, I think he's he's actually pulled out of the tour. I think he's basically just being eyeing I think up so. this yeah. world. I, I read an article him the other day and he was sort of, I mean, what happened at the tour? Because he, he kind of sort of brushed it under the carpet, but obviously something significant happened. I actually don't like the way he treated whatever happened i think it was pretty bad it was pretty disrespectful to the sponsors and he kept saying that he didn't he didn't publicly slag off any sponsors but just the way he wouldn't give any explanation to his team and his teammates and and the media i thought was pretty disrespectful i mean you think of how many young guys would love to be in that position i think it was like you know he maybe had there were deep-rooted reasons and, and and some kind of some mental issues which which helped him you know, walk away from that race in, in the middle of a stage. But I think there's a certain maturity that's required of a pro and someone in the in the spotlight to to have. And I, I think he let yeah. himself down a little okay. bit. But I don't know what happened. Still, I don't think they've actually. I don't think he's he's come out and said he actually specifically blamed one thing. I think he he said it was a build up of things. Oh, but I don't know what they were. And and who are we picking for Sunday's men's elite road race? And that's another lumpy. Well, course, listen, right? I, I wanted to be I wanted to be romantic. Isn't isn't Geraint Thomas riding? He is. Yes. That's why I, he is. He's another shout for the yeah, TT. Actually, I, I, I was, you know, I was toying with with you know, patriotism, you know, head versus heart, effectively, and um, I'm I'm going I'm going G in the men's road. Very good. And what wheels would you put him on if you if he wasn't sponsored? You choose <laughs> something punchy. Um, like Alex has already touched upon, uh, stiffness would be incredibly important. You know, aerodynamics are important, but so is stiffness and power transfer. 
45 mil deep, 50 mil deep, you know, aero rim, something quick, quick engaging with the hub and yeah, just something nice and stiff and punchy. Very good. Who are you going for, Alex? For the road race, I might say, I think I'd like to say Vanderpol, but it's, it's a long race. I think it's 284 kilometers, right? That's more, for me, that's more of an Audax, but I I would say Vanderpol, no, I don't think he's got the distance. I think Alaphilippe might be a shout. Yeah. Milan San Remo. Yeah. Yeah, very good. And what about yeah, the ladies? Yeah. The ladies are a great race. Ah, ah, no, I've changed my mind again. It's I'm going oh, to wow. Gilbert. Okay. Because he was really strong. He was really strong. He was very good. Yeah, very strong. And there was a couple of, there was, there was that lumpy stage that finished in Bilbao, which, uh, which I think was great training for him to win this world. And for the ladies, any thoughts on that? I think it's going to be a fantastic elite women's race. Ah, uh, who's going to win the uh, ladies? Luton. Yeah, no idea, to be honest. Absolutely no idea. And I should take more notice of women's cycling because, you know, the racing is... is... I'd go with Annemiek van Vluten. Sorry, Ben, I think you were about to say the racing is fantastic. It is, right? I absolutely love it. The racing is great. And I think, you know, myself included, I don't watch enough women's cycling. It's as simple as that. And I don't know know what's going to change that for me. And I'm being brutally honest. That's just just the way things are for me at the moment. Um, If I'm lucky, I get to, you know, keep up with with the men's. Um, because I managed to catch a few minutes of highlights on on ITV4 in the evening. Yeah, yeah. I think most keen cyclists actually love watching elite women's riding. It's fantastic. It's very exciting. Often fantastic races. Part of the issue is we just don't seem to get the coverage. It's hard to go out, even in the written press, to, to find find the coverage. It's getting better, but hopefully that will continue. I I, I think uh, watching the women's women's racing is is. It's more exciting than watching a lot of the men's races. Yeah, it's more unpredictable. They, they kind of DSs and and the riders they they don't like to stick by the the kind of traditional rules of you know the, you know they see the they see the road book they see the how long the stage is and if it was a men's race in a Grand Tour you could kind of write the ending before they've even left. But yeah, the the girls racing can be really exciting. But for the I think for the the ladies is Lizzie Dignan uh, riding. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Coming She's certainly been back racing. I suspect she will be. I'm not sure, actually. It would be really nice to see women's cycling in the same direction as, as women's football is, is going at the moment, to be honest. Better wages for riders, increased media coverage. Um, I think, you know, women's football in the last year or two has made huge strides in just um, representation to, to the public. It'd be great to see, you know, women's cycling going in the same direction. Yeah, I agree. I've been quite surprised at the, the women's football, soccer side of things, just having been out of the country for nine years and come back here. It's, it's, it's genuine as well. It doesn't feel like it's a token thing. There's, there's genuine interest in it and there's genuine media coverage, which is fantastic. A hundred percent. And the quality of the, the you know the play will, will only accelerate as a result of that media coverage, um, as a result of women being able to actually earn a fair wage playing football. And, and I guess likewise with cycling, the more professionalism we see in it and the more the, more the public can engage with it the faster the development it will you know it will have as a sport yeah i just uh, professional cycling for me i think something's got to change just in terms of a business model perspective i can't see how the way it's structured at the moment both both the men's side and 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 the female and the women's side how it's sustainable and i think that while it's great to have ineos come in and, and put 65 million euros a year whatever it is i think it's more than that in it just stretches other teams to a point that it's going to be unsustainable at some point there's only so many firms that can can write off that kind of budget in terms of a marketing spend so at some point i think the whole structure of cycling will will have to change and evolve if it's going to carry on in the way it is <laughs> that was that was a conversation stopper wasn't it <laughs> Um, okay, Ben, uh, both well, both of you, thank you so much for joining today. Ben, before you go, where's your favourite place in the world to cycle? French Alps. Um, anywhere in the French Alps on a sunny day, no traffic. Yeah, love it. Can't beat it. And have you, you know the Alps Cycles guys, don't you? Have you met those guys? I do know the Alps Cycles guys very, very well. Uh, and they know me very well. If you want to go on a cycling holiday um, and you want to, uh, you want to be able to relax and you want to be taken around the best climbs and uh, just perhaps experience a little bit of what it's like to be a professional cyclist. Yeah, definitely look up Alps Cycles. They're the absolute best in the business out there. Yeah, they're great. Hopefully we're going to have uh, AD on the podcast once his uh, season quietens down a bit. So I'm looking forward to catching up. Well, that will be a treat. Well, yeah, yeah, it should be. I'm looking forward to it. Very good. And Winter Wheels, I think what we'll do is um, I, I'm very keen to chat with you further offline about getting those Winter Wheels. And I think it'll be good to 
come back to the podcast and let everyone know the experience I've had obviously buying wheels with yourself and how I find them and and then maybe when we get to spring we can talk about some race wheels for next year definitely definitely look forward to it brilliant thank you both very much any other questions Alex anything uh no questions I just think well, I hope you now Jules you know like when you when you're looking at wheels and, and forming a specification in your head I hope now you have a a bit more of an appreciation of, of, of what what we're talking about and not, not I do massively I think it's been hugely interesting conversation and um, you know what sometimes I think there'll be a lot of people out here listening and, and they'll they'll know in their heart of hearts that there's more to their decision making around wheels or there should be but still you're swayed towards the weight only thing or getting a bargain on or whatever so I, I think Hopefully, this conversation will help with the education process. Certainly for me, it's, it's, I, I want to try and get a, a set of wheels from Ben and, and that'll be my sort of first foray into it. I think for me, uh, just one quick question I'd like to fire to Alex before uh, before we wrap things up. We've talked a lot about spokes yeah, sure. and um, future wheel development. I wondered if, you know, just from a materials perspective, you've got any opinion on um, the kind of emergence of things like the bird, which are... Um, I guess they kind of composite or, or fiber spoke, which is yeah, just like a like a string, like a piece of material almost. Are they are they the the white colored ones? Yeah, exactly. What look like white fabric? Yeah, I think there's some kind some kind of Kevlar composite like woven material. Essentially, they should work in the same exactly the same manner as as a steel spoke because a spokes always work under tension as you know and even when you have a compression when you put compression into a spoke it's still be in positive tension so if you've got material that's very strong in tension which will never see but what's what we call a buckling load in engineering actually something that's completely floppy in compression like a piece of string will work absolutely fine and i think the production method is not there yet and essentially it's very hard to build these wheels i think by hand to, to lace them up and true them but one positive thing over that kind of fiber material is that it essentially has a infinite fatigue life and that's one of the great things about carbon fibers and kevlar fibers is if they're especially a carbon fiber composite with epoxy if it's laid up properly almost has you can consider it as having an infinite fatigue life whereas a steel spoke like a sapim or a dt swiss you you know you look at the data sheets on the website and it will tell you the fatigue life under what loading so steel unfortunately or any anything metallic does have a fatigue life uh, titanium is probably one of the better materials out there that has the most resilient fatigue life out of all metallic alloys some titanium alloys that's why it's used so widely in aircraft structures because it just pushes out the service intervals of the aircraft and that's more time in the air and more money so titanium is widely used i don't think titanium is a great solution for a spoke because it's quite hard to draw out into thin wire and it's not that stiff it's not as stiff as steel so you'd need a much heavier gauge titanium spoke to do the same job as a steel spoke then it's less aerodynamic and it, it just wouldn't catch on and it's it's quite expensive as well but those those fibers you mentioned are, are the only thing that is it, the, when i look at those what i worry about is when you know when you were, you were a kid and you had a brand new white pair of trainers with white laces is getting the laces muddy that's what I worry about, is, is having them go yellow or brown <laughs> the first time it rains. Nobody wants that. You won't look half as cool. Yeah, exactly. But no, theoretically, going back to the theory of it, so long as the spokes are always in tension, then they'll work, they'll work absolutely fine. They'll never see minus tension or, or compression unless you have a seriously heavy... The, the problem is if you, have a ser- if you have a seriously heavy impact and let's say the rim deforms and you lose all the spoke tension, then it has no structural integrity at all. So the, the rim would literally just fall apart in one. Yeah, I think the tension really is my main concern with them as well. Just in terms of, you know, a spoke made from that material, it would seem to me as a, as a builder, you it would need to run at very, very high tension in order to perform. I suppose with a lot of, yes, exactly. you know, 11 speed road rear wheels, uh, rim braking, for example, a non-drive side of the wheel runs at a pretty low tension. And I'd, I'd be concerned that, you know, the spoke. Yeah, it does form, you know, at, at that level. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why they would probably work great on the front wheel because you've got equal spoke tensions. And, and Jules, just before we wrap up, we, I think we, we both were waiting to mention this, but the geometry of road hubs, on the, particularly on the rear, is, is really flawed at the moment. And we're, we're basically, we've got into the situation where the, the whole industry is dealing with like legacy geometry that we've been stuck with. Now, if you built 20 years ago an eight-speed rear hub, in terms of me- mechanical integrity and stiffness, you, you, you'd have a better wheel than we have now because 
we've now crammed up to sort of 12 gears on the same geometry for for a road quick release size and what's that done, what that's what that's done is push all the dry side spokes in inwards and the, the angle of those spokes is is a lot straighter down towards the hub so you need a much higher tension on that side to get the same lateral pulling force as you do on the the non-drive side and as a result of that the non-drive side in some hubs can be can be really too low and then if you couple a, a low spoke tension with a very stiff spoke it becomes really hard to, to, for the wheel to stay true because you need a certain amount of stretch in a spoke and if you don't have a certain amount of stretch in a spoke then the nipple always comes loose it's it's exactly the same as using so if you look at a car a cylinder head on a car it has huge, very long, almost foot-long uh, threaded studs to, to compress the cylinder head down onto the engine block. And the reason why they use them is so long is because the nuts will never come loose. So it can take a lot of stretch and any vibrations or any thermal expansion from the engine is taken in by that stretch and the nut won't come loose. If that thread is then very stiff, i.e. very short, can kind of be the same thing. And it's easier for the nut on the end to come loose. And it's, same, it's the same with the spoke. So if we keep having like modern hub geometries where we need to have a low tension on one side, you cannot use a stiff, you know, thick gauge spoke on that side because it will come loose more often because there's not so much stretch in it at a low tension. So, and this is all left over from um, us cramming on, you know, 11, 12 speed cassettes onto the same type of hub. We just need more space. So we've pushed, we've pushed one of the, the spoke flanges inwards and it's created this big asymmetry. And when you're building wheels, you know, you know, if, if someone said to me that like, you can build front front wheels all day and they're symmetric, I, I love building front wheels because it's easy, you know, but I always put off, always, always build the rear wheel last because I like to get the nice easy bit done first because that's the enjoyable part. And then building a rear wheel with, with an 11 speed cassette and the modern geometry we've got is, is always a headache. You're always battling to try and get the non-drive side into tension and trying to get a little bit more tension into it. So, the wheel will last a bit longer and it is a bit stiffer and like like ben touched on earlier we really need a ground up redesign of rear hubs so the uh drive side and non-drive side are symmetrical the spoke tensions will be even the wheel's going to last longer and it will feel better but it's going to take a very bold manufacturer to come out and, and try and invent a new standard and i know on some, there's some cannondale mountain bikes which use a rear hub geometry which i think is symmetrical or more symmetrical than what we've got now and they've actually tried to balance those spoke tensions and, and solve the problem but it's it's not gonna or it hasn't caught on it's it's proprietary um but i wish someone in the industry said right we're going to redesign 11 speed hubs 12 speed hubs so the spokes are more kind of aligned in, in terms of their that sounds like um, a challenge for you Alex. Oh, it's not a challenge it's really easy mate it's really easy but you, it, it, it requires completely new standard it needs all the frame builders out there oh, right. to change no. their dropout spacing it requires it requires a lot of, you know, it's a lot of, the solution behind it is simple, but it's trying to pass it through, which is the difficult part. And it, we're so far down the road now with developed of, uh, you know, like SRAM's XD hub body. And we've got really good at cramming loads of cogs onto a hub that's too small, is, is how I can put it. Would you add anything to that, Ben? I'd say, yeah, Alex, in terms of designing, uh, in terms of designing a better hub, you know, he would certainly be able to do that. And I think, yeah, the tricky thing then for a lot of people is to actually manufacture it. I think you might assume that a, a bicycle hub is is a relatively, you know, a relatively simple object. Um, certainly stuff like DT Swiss hub doesn't have that many moving parts. But to actually have it mass manufactured at the correct tolerances for it to be reliable is actually a pretty difficult thing. And there's certainly a lot of manufacturers that haven't um, haven't managed to get there in the past who have, you know, released hubs that just don't really work very well and it's it's harder to have these things made than you you would imagine to the right tolerances that's it's exactly right because if you take it into like one of the probably the best performing lightweight decent decent value hub out there's what a dt swiss 240 and i use it quite a lot on wheel sets and i've built a few wheel sets of friends using it and the dt swiss i think ben said earlier it doesn't use a preload adjuster which is nice for for us because we don't have to deal with preload and, and servicing the preload and setting it but what that means is the tolerances in manufacture have to be spot on because the the axle spacing and and the bearings the bearing seats the widths between the bearings inside the hub have to be spot on otherwise when you assemble the end caps and put it in a bike it could bind with certain other hubs like shimano hubs where you've got angular contact bearings or cup and cone bearings you can you can take out any manufacturing tolerances by just tightening the adjusters a little bit so you really don't have to worry about the axle length or the bearing seat uh, positions too much because they have a preload adjuster and that's set by the user now some people like that to, to adjust the preload and it makes it very easy to 
service at home and stuff. But with hubs that don't use a preload adjuster, like DT Swiss that use cartridge bearings, like people have to realize that it is really hard to get those tolerances repeatable every single time. And we're talking within 10 microns, 0.01 millimeters of, of distances between the hub spacing, uh, the bearing spaces and stuff like that. And it's easy to do it one off on a lathe. If you take, you know, you could make the hub shell on a lathe. If you took a day to do it, you could probably do that. But to knock, I don't know how many thousand out per day or week in a factory and have it repeatable is is really good and, and they do last like the dt swiss hubs don't go through cartridge bearings you know if you get ben touched on earlier bitex is a very cheap taiwanese hub um, that a lot of wheel builders in the uk like to use because they can build a cheap wheel set with it now the front hubs i've gotten really well with but the rear hubs the the bearing layout is similar to a dt swiss but they haven't nailed the tolerances and the consequence of that is the bearings last like couple wow. of months before they're shot and there's loads of play in the bearings it really takes a lot of time and, and investment and, and nailing down the tolerances of the tooling not just the hub but the tooling that makes the hub to make it repeatable that's why if i'm building a, a hub with like t- cartridge bearings so sealed bearings then i'll always be swiss it's been a fascinating insight both of you thank you so much for for taking the time i think we should probably start to wrap up given that we've been on the clock over an hour now alex firstly thank you so much for joining us ben let chat off air about my winter wheels stay in touch keep posting on top spreading the word and yeah let's let's reconvene in in a couple of months and see how we're all getting on brilliant thanks for your time both have a brilliant weekend cheers thank you guys cheers ben for your info great thanks alex thanks for listening please subscribe to the podcast and more importantly don't forget to download the unfound app and join cyclists from around the world on the hub we'll see you on there